Um, we're going to think about God's word from the passage that was read just a few moments ago, Mary's song. So if you, if you want to have that open, that would be good um, in front of you. Um, o Holy Night. So our Christmas uh, series this year is going to be called A Thrill of Hope. Um, and it comes from that famous carol, O Holy Night, which is uh, my favorite Christmas song. Anyone else um, have O Holy Night? I know it is a big, it's a big one for lots of us. Um, it's my favorite Christmas song. Um, and there's a stunning moment um, in the classic Christmas movie, Home Alone, um, when Kevin, home alone, left home alone in his house over Christmas, feeling pretty dejected. Here's the sound of a church choir. You remember this moment? Um, he hears the sound of a church choir that's echoing out um, into the cold winter air from inside the church. And the choir inside are singing, O Holy Night. And Kevin enters the church and he takes a seat. Um, and as we enter the warmth of that church with Kevin in that moment in Home Alone, the sound of the singing intensifies. Um, and we're drawn, well, I'm certainly drawn into the wonder and the beauty of Christmas all over again. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and a glorious dawn. Just incredible, incredible lyrics. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Don't we need those words again this year? A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Um, so we're calling this Advent series in Carmoney a thrill of hope. That carol itself, O Holy Night, I don't know if many of you know the origins of, of that Christmas carol, but it has its, its origins in France in the mid-1800s. And initially the song actually caused a lot of, of controversy within the church to the point where O Holy Night was actually banned from being sung in churches. You see, O Holy Night was written by a French a Frenchman called Placide Capot um, who actually lost his faith lost his faith completely. And the composer, uh, the composer of, of the music to A Holy Night was actually a Jewish man called Adolf Adam. But despite all of that controversy in its early years of, of inception, God was still at work um, through the lyrics of that song, crafting some of the most beautiful and powerful lyrics I believe ever written. And the song, O Holy Night, eventually made its way to America where God used an abolitionist named John Sullivan Dwight to help spread the lyrics across the globe so that every Christmas now, um, whenever we gather um, in church and in other places, we hear those lyrics, O Holy Night, and we're helped to reflect again on the night of Jesus' birth. I find the story of O Holy Night fascinating. Um, it sounds a little edgy, actually. It sounds like the controversy surrounding its origin um, carries a bit of edge with it. But perhaps that's exactly why it has been used by God in such a powerful way. Because aren't the events of the first Christmas a little edgy? Aren't the events of that very first Christmas in many ways controversial? I think we forget that. We get caught up in the, the kind of coziness and warmth of Christmas that we forget that actually the events at the very beginning when Jesus came, born of a virgin, born in a humble manger, those moments are actually on the edge 
those moments in many ways are, are filled with controversy. Luke's account of the Christmas narrative contains, I think, four different songs that are sung at different points surrounding the, the events of Jesus' birth. And someone says this, they say, after 400 years of silence, the heavens and the earth break forth in an epic display of new song. And when the scriptures sing, we better pay attention. And so what we see in these moments, the silence is broken. 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, during which, as far as we know, God didn't speak. At least the script, no scripture was written in those 400 years. But into the atmosphere of first century Bethlehem, these new songs are sung in what is a new dawn in history. God loves song. God loves song. The scriptures are, are punctuated from beginning to end with, with song lyrics. Um, all the way through the scriptures from the song of Moses and Miriam in Exodus chapter 15 to the songs of the new creation that we read of and, and hear in the pages of Revelation. When that multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation will sing the praises of the Lamb who is seated on the throne. God loves song. And then right in the middle of the Bible, we've got the 150 Psalms, which are beautifully crafted songs, lyrics that sing to us the goodness of God that express and help us to express all of the emotions that we experience as God's people here on earth. One author in a, an article entitled Sing a New Song at Christmas um, says this. He says, in no other time of year do our lives feel so omnipresently filled with song as in the holiday season. And while the world hears these songs as the backdrop of consumerism celebrated, the church hears the yearly call to remember and celebrate the Emmanuel, the long-awaited one now at hand, the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. See, Christmas is all about placing Christ at the very center. That's what we want to do again this Christmas time in a consumer-driven culture, and we all get caught up in that. We want to be the people of God who behold Christ, who place Jesus right at the center of who we are and all that we're about as a church family. Songs in the Bible do a number of things for us. I read a really interesting article that talks about how songs advance, advance the narrative plot in Scripture. Songs help us to, to, to go forward in the story of what God is communicating to us. Songs help to emphasize key themes, emphasize key themes um, in the Bible. Songs enhance um, our perspective on what God is doing. And songs enable the ancient audience and us to become emotionally involved in what God is speaking to us. And so we pray that this Christmas we would enter the song of Christmas once again, that we would enter the narrative that, that the story of Christmas would be enhanced in all of our hearts that we would be emotionally involved in a very fresh way. That's our desire as we go through this series. Does that sound okay? Does that sound good? That's what we're aiming for. We're going to enter again the Christmas story. We're going to allow the Holy Spirit to emotionally engage us 
in all that God is wanting to communicate to us again this year. So Mary's song, and that's where we're going to begin this series, Mary's song, Luke chapter 1, also known as the Magnificat. And that just means glorifies. Mary glorifies God. She made much of God. She glorifies his name in this moment of song. See, Mary's song expresses her response to the news that she hears from the angel that having conceived by the Holy Spirit, she will carry and she will give birth to the Messiah. I think it's really important that we note that these aren't like throwaway words from Mary. She's not just like throwing these lyrics out there in this moment. It's, it's not simply off the cuff. Mary is actually singing scripture. Mary is speaking from the well of the Old Testament because in this moment, Mary is weaving the song of Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 2 as well as Psalm 100 um, into this outburst of song. It's beautiful. Mary knows her scripture. Mary knows the word of God. And in this moment of, of adoration and glorification of the Lord, she sings scripture. She sings the word of God. And the words that Mary sings are both personal, deeply personal to her, but also universal in the sense that God was doing something in this moment that would bless the whole world. So three thoughts on Mary's song. Firstly, Mary's song is a song of worship. Mary's song is a song of worship. Look at what she sings in verses 46 and 47. Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, when God speaks, when God reveals something to us about who he is, about what he's done, what he's doing, or, or what he's going to do, um, our only response is to worship. There's no other response adequate enough to God but to worship him. I think that's what I love most about Mary's song. She glorifies the Lord. She worships God. Her spirit rejoices. Her soul glorifies. She recognizes that, that God is her savior and her soul sings. And I think it's really interesting because Mary isn't saying that her soul is doing one thing and her spirit another. What she's saying here is that she has been moved to the very depths of her being. Spirit and soul, her entire being worships the Lord. I love how in this moment there's no fanfare. There's no congregation like this gathered around Mary. There's no congregation. No one's around apart from these two willing women of God, Mary and Elizabeth. Elizabeth, we're told, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Mary, we know, she carries the Son of God who was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Let's make no mistake, these are two spirit-filled women of God. These are two spirit-filled women of faith who are given this incredible moment and their response to God's activity is to worship him. These are two wonderful heroines of the faith. How could they not be? And Luke loves the faith and the humility of these women. He, he wants us to see and to hear from the heart of Mary and Elizabeth. He wants to tell us all about them. 
one pastor talks about how God is about to change the course of human history. The most significant moment in all of history is about to take place. The Savior is about to be born. And what is God doing? Where is God in this moment? Well, God is found occupying himself with two obscure, humble women. One is old and barren, Elizabeth. The other is young and a virgin, Mary. Imagine. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That in a moment that is going to change the, whole, the course of human history, God is found to be at work in this way with an old barren woman named Elizabeth and this young virgin Mary. What should this remind us of? How God's hand reaches to the lowly and, and those who feel like they're on the edges somewhere. This is where God is at work in this moment. Mary's song is a song of worship. Secondly, it's a song of great humility. Look at what Elizabeth says in, in, in verse 43 of Luke 1. Elizabeth says, why is this granted to me? You can sense the humility there. Why, why is this granted to me that the mother of the Lord should come to me? And then Mary says in, in verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I think we can say that, that only, uh, the only people who can truly worship and magnify the Lord are people like Mary and Elizabeth, those who understand their humble estate, those who realize that, that God is, is, is all-glorious, magnificent in every way, and yet he reaches down to bless and to be with people like us. Mary is incredibly humble. Mary says this in verses 48 to 50. She says, For he, God, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The mighty one has done great things for me. His mercy extends to those who fear him. You see, humility, deep humility is at the heart of Christmas. This is a moment of deep humility. Let me humble us a little bit more in case we're tempted to get above our station, in case we're tempted to think that we are someone. Um, listen to what American billionaire, um, a man called Ray Dalio, writes in a book called Principles. Listen to this. He acknowledges his own insignificance despite having apparently a net worth of $17 billion. Okay, that is what he's worth. Now, I haven't done the miles or the figures on this, but you'll get the point on what he's saying. Here's what he says about his existence. He says, each one of us is only one of about 7 billion people alive today on the planet. Our species is only one of about 10 million species on our planet. Earth is just one of about 100 billion planets in our galaxy, which is just one of about 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. And our lifetimes, he says, are about only about one three thousandth of hum humanity's existence, which itself is only about one twenty thousandth of the Earth's existence. In other words, he says, we are unbelievably tiny. And no matter what we accomplish in life, our impact will be insignificant. But then he says this, at the very same time, we instinctually want to matter. We want to matter. You see, in the grand scheme of things, as insignificant and as undeserving as we might feel at times, and I'm sure like me, you feel at times a little bit insignificant, you feel undeserving, but we, like Mary, we matter to God. We matter to him. You matter 
to God, that instinctual sense that you have within you, that instinct that wants your life and my life to matter is satisfied in Jesus. There's something within us that really longs to be deeply loved. There's something within us that that desires to, to matter to someone. And at Christmas time, we're reminded that we are on God's mind, that we matter to him, that he came for us, that in our humble state, he came to rescue us. Christmas so profoundly reminds us of that truth. We can say of Jesus, he's been mindful of me. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The mighty one has done great things for me. His mercy has extended to me. I might be one out of seven billion, but God's mindful of me. I'm only one on this planet. I'm only one person all of history, but I'm on his mind. I matter to him. God loves me. And so Mary's song highlights the importance of humility. And thirdly, uh, Mary's song, I believe, speaks of great reversal. Great reversal. The theme of reversal is really important in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, where we see over and over again that the poor and the marginalized experience God's blessing. The poor and the marginalized See, Luke uses Mary's song at the beginning of his gospel to make clear that this is how God works. God works on the fringes of society. God goes to the margins. God uses those of lowly position, those low down in the world's pecking order. Mary herself seemingly insignificant, of very little worth she feels, and yet God comes to her. She's living on an, in an out-of-the-way town. Bethlehem was a backwater. Didn't mean much in the grand scheme of things. That's where God chose to work. He came to this low-down woman of faith in an out-of-the-way town. This is where God chose to work. You see, God sending Jesus to us is a one-off event. God could have selected anywhere, couldn't he? He could have done, he could have done this any way he, he, he chose, but he chose to do it this way. He chose to visit Mary, to come to Mary. He chose to come to someone who was not famous, engaged to a simple carpenter, not even married yet, imagine, scandalous. Mary was a young peasant girl, in many ways very, very ordinary. But when it came time for the Son of God to be born as a human being, we know the story well. There was no room at the inn. There was no room for him to be born. And so the Son of the Most High born wasn't born in a palace, wasn't born surrounded by by velvet bed sheets. He was born in a smelly stable to a humble peasant girl don't forget that this Christmas but let's remember that God's timing God's ways God's places and God's people are exactly as he wants them to be seemingly insignificant people are significant to God if you're here and you're feeling insignificant you matter to God you matter to him 
He is the Holy One of Heaven who helps lowly people like you and me. You matter to God. We read in verses 52 and 53 that he exalts those of humble estate and he fills the hungry with good things. You see, Mary goes from being a peasant girl to the soon-to-be mother of the King of Kings. And she sings. She sings this song that speaks of an even greater reversal that was to come. You see, Mary's song foreshadows what this little baby who would soon be held in her arms will do in his own life and ministry. Jesus, we know, would reach out to the outcasts. Jesus, we know, would touch the untouchable. Jesus would go to the margins. Jesus would heal the sick. Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. And he would preach good news to the poor. This is the great reversal. This is who Jesus is and who he has come for. He brings life to the unlikely, life to the unlovable, life to the undeserving. Is that you? Do you feel that way? Maybe you're sitting here, maybe some of you young people here, and again, you're sitting here thinking, this is so far removed from my life. Maybe you think you can't really live this Christian life. Well, actually, he came for you. He came for those who don't quite have it all together. He came for the undeserving. He came for the unlikely. He came for those who feel humbled by their inability to live the way that he wants us to because it's all about his grace. He came for you and he came for me. It's the great reversal. It's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. And I love it. I love how God works. I love the way that God works. And we see it in the life of Mary. The incarnation of Jesus points to the good news that's at the heart of the gospel that Jesus has come for the weak and the worn out, for the worried and the weary. He has come for those who feel disheartened and downtrodden. He has come for the humble in heart. He has come to seek and to save the lost. This Christmas, we're going to thank God for that, that that is who he is. Jesus has come for you. He has come for you. Let me just pray. Our worship team are going to come up and they're going to lead us in song. Um, and you're getting ready for a winter picnic. We're going to enjoy that in a few moments' time. But let's just take a moment to come before the King of Kings. Let's remember who Jesus is and how he has come. It's my prayer that we sense that thrill of hope thrill of hope. You know, sometimes when you're thinking about who God is and what God has done in your life and you get these little moments, little glimpses in your heart where your heart leaps for joy, you're like, wow, God has done this for me. Let's just take a moment um, in the quiet as we come before God. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to worship you in a moment in song, Some of us do feel really weary. Some of us do feel really weak and worn out. Some of us do feel really worried about life. 
for some of us, our hearts are really heavy and we feel a little bit downtrodden. Circumstances in many ways have overcome us. And yet here we are, sitting in church, listening to the preacher preach. And yet, Lord God, in this moment, we listen for your voice breaking through into the depths of our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and do your work within us. Lift up the worried and the weary. Bring peace to the restless. For anyone here who's feeling like they're a little bit on the edges of all of this, may they know in this moment that your eye is upon them, that they matter to you, that you have come for them. Oh God, the Christmas story reminds us of all of that. You could have come to a government palace. You could have gone to the highest place, to the most important person in the land. The angel could have spoken into that place and said that the son of the most high would be born there. Get ready for him, get the trumpets ready. But God, you didn't do that. You went to an out of, out of place way, a, a forgotten place. You came to a humble virgin, a seeming nobody in the eyes of the world. And your spirit came upon Mary. The son of the most high God would be born there in a stable. Lord God, you have come. You have come for the weak and the worn out, the worried and the weary, for those who are downtrodden and disheartened. You've come for the humble in heart. For those who feel lowly, you've come for us, God. You've come to seek and to save us. We praise your name. Lift our hearts, lift our heads. Come, Holy Spirit. Send a thrill of hope, a thrill of hope that will ring through our hearts and will resound in this place. A thrill of hope, a thrill of hope that goes beyond our circumstances. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with that thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. Come, come, Holy Spirit.